I hope you all got some good sleep last night. I know I did. <laughs> I know at retreats you don't sleep very much. If you're not fellowshipping or cloistered away somewhere because you're searching out something in the Word or journaling because God has shown you something, but it's so worth it, right? Like, who, who cares if you lose a little sleep because you get so much more of Jesus? Amen? Amen. Well, I think the most exciting thing about our topic so far is that we've just emphasized Jesus and who he is. And I'm definitely a Jesus freak. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not being funny or facetious. I'm proud of it. And, and I know that it's not politically correct. And I'm glad. I don't care. I love him so much. And he's so worth it. And I feel like we're living in a day and age where people are trying so hard to tell us what we can and can't say. And obviously, I'm not from that generation. I'm not from that generation that is so concerned about everybody else. I'm concerned about him. And, and I hope that what's sparking in each one of us is that contagious, all-consuming fire that is just setting us ablaze for him that is um, spurring us deeper and deeper and deeper into who he is. Because everything that we encounter about Jesus changes us. He is the only person that I know of that has that effect on me. Every time I'm with him, Something about me changes. Most of the time, it's because something needs to change. I don't know about you, but every time I'm with him, something in me is stirred up, and I find more of him that I can own. You know what I mean? I find more of his spirit. John, John said it this way, John the Baptist, he said, I have to decrease so that he can increase. And what we're going to see over the sessions that we have today is just that's all of life. This grand exchange. We decrease, but Jesus increases. And it's like the greatest exchange ever. All that we want to get rid of and that we want to go away in our lives gets to go away and we get the perfect one. We get the all-powerful one. We get the one who has love for the most unlovable. And, and I hope that that doesn't scare you. I think so often when people come to Jesus... They only know about what we give up, what Christians give up, and the rules and regulations and the things they don't do. And I hope that what we see 
as we look at our destiny, as we look at our inheritance, as we look at what we have in him, that you'll see that we get so much more, so much more than we could ever give. Where else in the world can you give your absolute worst, your sins, your mistakes, the things that you wish you'd never done, and in exchange get everything you ever wanted? He's thousand times better than Santa Claus. That's why I'm so against Santa. <laughs> I'm so against Santa. <laughs> I'm so excited that we don't have to do anymore what we don't want to do. You know, Paul said in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm so glad that the dominion of sin has been broken. So often, the very thing that, that I was concerned about or complaining about or, or dreading in life, I find out God can make it so attractive and so different, and he can just transform it in a minute. And I find out that the things I'm scared of, I actually need. And I don't need to be scared of. I enjoy them. And maybe you haven't had that experience with Jesus yet. But I hope, I hope that as you enter into his presence, you're going to find it more and more. What I believe and what I hope that you believe is that God's presence is edifying and encouraging and inspiring. I know that every time I meet with him and fellowship and commune with him and I open myself up and let him have his way, I'm changed. Are you? Amen. Do you feel like when you sit in his presence, something happens in you? Because if you don't, if you're listening to me and thinking, she's just extreme, or she's just crazy. I just want to say to you, you're missing the best part. You're missing the best part of being a believer. You know, there's a phrase that's so beautiful in the scripture over and over again. You'll see it. It says, this is the heritage of the saints. This is the inheritance. This is the, I, I, I wish we could replace that word with privilege. This is the honor, but that's what it is. And, and God wants you to be blessed in his presence. He wants you to love being around him. And I want you to think about how yesterday we saw that Jesus is the supreme king of kings. He's everything majestic, everything powerful, everything royal. And we know from history that nobody ever becomes a royal except by marriage or birth, right? And ladies, when you were born again, you were literally born into that royal family. I saw some sweet ladies 
putting crowns on and taking pictures. Because all of us, when we were little girls, dreamed about being a princess. I mean, come on, let's be honest, we did. And, and I think God did that on purpose. He did that on purpose. And I'm so excited because what we're going to see today is we really do have a prince. He really is going to ride on that white horse. He really is going to give us a happily ever after that the Bible says is so incredible. There's not words to describe it. No eyes ever seen it. I, there's no way I could possibly make it attractive enough. We really have royal robes. And the beautiful thing about being a believer is you have it right now. Right this minute. It's yours. Miraculously, scripturally, supernaturally, you are a princess. And I just think about like me, plain me. And as I said, you know, universally as ladies, we never can say anything nice about ourselves. <laughs> but you're a princess. You have that royal destiny. God says, I love you. I accept you. I've robed you. I've made you beautiful. And I continue to make you beautiful. And there's nothing... The Bible says, the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And that's where I always feel like, oh, yeah, but I don't walk uprightly. You know what you do? You walk uprightly because he walks uprightly. And because you're his, because you are the daughter of a king, when you're not walking uprightly, he picks you up in his arms and he carries you. The scriptures say that when he was, he was in the wilderness with Israel, it says, I bore you like an eagle bears up its young. And, and I don't know if you've heard all the stories, but you know, eagles, when they're teaching their young to fly, they just knock them right out of the nest. I love that. <laughs> they just bust them right out of the nest. And, and as they start to fall, the mom just swoops underneath with her mighty wings and she just catches them up. And so often, I feel like that little eaglet. Does anybody else? Like I'm just falling, free falling, you know? And I'm screaming, ah! But he's right there. He's right there. And I hope that what we walk away from this weekend with is such an overriding sense of his presence, such a confidence that he's doing that. It's not something he's thinking about. It's not maybe or if you're good enough or for the elite of God. It's for all of us. He's already doing it. And he wants you to get on board. He wants me to get on board. He wants us to get involved and I hope that what you're going to see as we go through the lesson today especially is that we have this privilege of saying, yes, Lord, 
uh-oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've done that so many times when my husband's teaching and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's gonna kill me when I get home. So I know how you feel, honey. <laughs> I'm not gonna kill you, I've done it before. But I hope you have that sense of like, there's so much more to gain. There's so much more to gain by just diving in, by just saying, Lord, I want all you have from me, for me, than standing on the sidelines scared that you're going to fail. You're going to. I remember I was, um, and I'm sorry I deviate with so many stories, but I remember I was going through a, a season in my life, and I, I think I might have shared this when I was here a couple years ago, but... You know how we all have some phrase that the enemy likes to play around in our head and it just incapacitates you? Well, mine is always that I failed or that I'm a failure. Does anybody have something like that? And so when something goes wrong, you know, I, it's like a knife that goes into your heart and I would just be, oh, and, and, and so sad and so depressed. And obviously, you know, sometimes in the months it was even worse. It was just all consuming. And I just thought, Lord, you know, there has to be some way around this. And I was listening to a, a radio broadcast and this pastor said, you know, you only have one enemy. And I thought, well, I need to know about this. You know, I think I got a lot. I got this going on and that. And and, and he said, really, the only enemy you have is Satan. He might use a Christian or somebody else in your life to distract you and discourage you and rob you and, and cheat you, but he's behind everything. So if you're fighting that neighbor who's, you know, in your face all the time or that non-believer who's trying to slow you down or whoever it is, you're fighting the wrong enemy. And I thought, okay. And then I was like, well, Lord, what if the enemy is yourself? You know, what if, what if somebody's like me and you just feel like you're a failure? And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I really am. This isn't like feeling sorry for myself and, and I'm just making a big deal. I, I really am. And I listed for the Lord honestly. I mean, it wasn't one of those pity parties. It was really things I had failed in. And, and I was thinking about it and praying. And then the Lord just said to me, so what? So you failed. What, what does that mean? And I was like, well, you know that you're disappointed. And he's like, no, because I judge everything based on Jesus, not you. And I was like, yeah. You know, I started kind of going down that road thinking about it. The bottom line is I came to the place that I realized that I could wallow in what was already done, I couldn't change, couldn't go back and fix, or I could find a way to get victory over that sadness and depression and those things that were immobilizing me. And I felt like the Lord said, you know, I said my word is a sword and that you needed to learn to use the sword of the spirit, the specific sword and, you know, the Bible itself is a belt of truth. And I know you're studying uh, spiritual warfare if you're going through the Bible study with Christina, so I'm not going to reteach it. But the whole counsel of God, the whole truth of God is what centers us and grounds us and gives us power in through the middle. 
But we need that sword, that specific rahema, not the logos, that's the whole counsel of God, but we need that rahema, that specific word. And it means just this. If I'm struggling with feeling like I'm a failure, and I say, well, all I need to know is the, is the scripture, and so here it comes, I feel like a failure. Jesus loved me so much, he died for me. That's in the word of God. It's a scripture, but it's not helping me. <laughs> it's not applicable. It's not for my specific situation. Any more than if I'm struggling with temptation of some kind, Jesus wept is helping me. That's a scripture. But memorizing scripture is not wielding the sword of the spirit. Wielding the sword of the spirit is knowing a specific scripture for a specific difficulty. And so God showed me that and I said, okay, Lord. And I began searching the scripture and praying, what is my sword for when I feel like I'm a failure. And, and I got a scripture, y'all know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can anybody fail if that's the truth? No way. If you have Christ, nothing can fail. That's what that scripture says. And I thought, Lord, I am going to learn how to stand on this scripture. I have no idea what this is like, but I am going to do it. And I literally wrote that simple little scripture on a three-by-five card, not because I forgot it, but because I wanted a tangible way to think about that sword being at hand and ready, you know? I was trying to train myself. And so every time... That phrase went through my head, I'm a failure. I would pull out that scripture and say, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and this happened for probably a full month. I probably repeated that, more, that scripture more times than any of you have. <laughs> but it was really from my heart and with conviction because I believed God had told me that was the key. Now, it had nothing to do with me saying the scripture. That's not what, what made it happen. It was believing it. It was owning it. It was taking that scripture and saying, rather than wallow in this place where darkness is and where I get incapacitated and I feel depressed and I just think about all the things I've done wrong and I spiral downwards, I'm going to choose to believe and stand on the fact that God says something different. And I believe that there's power in who Jesus is. And you know what? I still have days where I feel like a failure, but not anything like before. Because now, when I hear that phrase or that struggle comes to me, I smile because I think, you know what? Praise God, I am. <laughs> I am. And I'm sorry that I'm a failure, but I'm so glad. Because Jesus has not only shown me that he can do all things through me and demonstrated over and over and over again, it doesn't matter that I'm a failure. If my faith is in him, the sky's the limit.
I'm free. And whatever it is that you're facing, I want you to jot down Psalm 149 and, and um, just write that down for yourself. I'm not going to read it with you, but it's a beautiful psalm, and it talks about the power of praise and the promises that we have from God to do just exactly what I just described, to use the word of God to change our minds. You see, John Corson puts it this way, and I love it. He says, you can't change your heart. None of us can. But we can change our minds. And if we will do the work and change our minds, God will change our hearts. Amen? He will take that truth. The Bible says he's going to write it on our hearts for us, right? And he makes it alive. Psalm 119 says over and over again that he quickens his word. He's going to quicken it in your heart and make it alive and show you what it's like to walk, as the scripture says, in the newness of life. You are Jesus's. It's no longer you who lives, but Jesus who lives in you. And the beauty of all the things we saw yesterday about his majesty and supremacy and awesomeness. I don't even know if that's a word, but the beauty of it is it can be yours. And it can be yours starting today. And I want you to see that when Paul said, it's no longer I who live. It's no longer all those faults, all those debilitating words that you hear up here. Remember I said the battle's right, right up here between our ears. It's none of those things. He said, but it's Christ who lives in me. I died. And the life I live now, I live by faith through the Son of God who loved me. And if you can wrap your heart around that truth, the sky is going to be the limit for you. You can take God at his word. You can stop leaning on your own understanding. You can really literally learn in everything to just trust him, to, to lean on him, to, to, like it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, acknowledge him in everything. You can, I, I actually, would you turn with me to James chapter 4? I want to read a couple verses. These were on my heart yesterday and we didn't get to them, so I've just got to go there before we start. It's such a little phrase, and it's one I'm sure most of you know already very, very well. Sorry, I keep turning right over to 1 Peter. <laughs> it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You, my beloved sister, 
That's your right, your heritage, your privilege. It's not a requirement. Think about your weakness, your struggle, your biggest battle. Biggest battle against yourself, not with other people. And I just encourage you, during the quiet time today, ask the Lord for your sword. Bring it right before him. Just draw near to him in that place where you feel like it just gets you every time and you just know how. Sometimes I feel like depression has those sticky little fingers, you know, and it just comes up out of the shadows and it just kind of sucks you in. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to get stuck there. You can be free. You can find in that shadow, in that place where there's been so much pain, you can just open your eyes and say, Jesus, and that's enough. He's right there with you in it. He's over all. And he said this. He said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came to give you life and life abundantly. I didn't come to give you a life where you feel condemned and sad and wonder why nothing ever works out. I used to feel like Ziggy the Born Loser, if anybody used to read comics, you know, like everything just goes wrong. If it can go wrong, it will in my life. I'm not that person anymore. Actually, I am still that person, but Jesus in me isn't. Jesus in me has abundant life, and you have abundant life too. God, I said yesterday, and I really believe it, Jesus is like our supernatural petrol station. Every encounter you have with him is going to make you stronger, wiser, you know, an overcomer, more than a conqueror, which all of us are. There's, a, there's that beautiful scripture in Romans chapter 8, and there's also one in 1 John chapter 4, that we overcome because of the word. You are an overcomer just because you're a child of God. And to be an overcomer, to be more than a conqueror, means that you stand victorious before you even take your first shot in the battle. You are fighting from victory. You are standing against that thing that you've struggled with your whole life, and you're saying, thank you, Lord. You've already won, and now you're going to teach me how to walk out of this minefield unscathed. And then tomorrow, you're going to show me that not only do I walk out of here unscathed, I get plunder. I get to take back from the enemy not only what he's taken from me, but more. Amen? And I know that sounds like, wow, I wish that would happen. It will. That is your destiny. And that is where the Lord wants you to have deeper, higher, wider, fuller, more in every encounter with him. And he doesn't want it to be some days 
You know, I used to think like some days I would have these amazing quiet times and I would go to Bible study and God would just speak and it would be so incredible. And I thought, wow, Lord, I just love when that happens. But God's word is that rich every day. And he has something for you every time. Now, does that mean that every single day is going to feel great? No. Every day doesn't feel great for me. But now, as I've walked this way, as I'm learning what it means to be more than a conqueror, I realize when it doesn't feel great, I'm going to learn something new. That's the difference. My world doesn't rock and shake like it used to, and I wonder, oh, God, where are you? I just think, okay, Lord, something else has to go. The scripture says in, in Hebrews, um, I can't, sorry, I can't remember if it's 10, 11, or 12, but it says there's coming a time where there's a shaking coming, and everything is going to shake so that only that which can't be shaken might remain. And so often when you are in that place, of difficulty and, and trial has come up and you just feel like it's trial after trial after trial. If you could hear the Lord whispering to you, this is what he'd say, my bride, my sweet princess and daughter, I love you so much. This has been tormenting you long enough. I'm shaking it up because I don't want it to bother you ever again ever again. Amen? Amen? You really will get to the place where when tragedy strikes, you're able to say, Lord, I know you're going to do something. You have a freedom for me. You have a victory for me. You have a plunder for me. And it doesn't incapacitate you anymore. That's where God wants to take you, me, all of us. That's not a pipe dream. That's the word of God. Amen? Let's pray and get started. Lord, I just thank you so much that your word is so full of promises of your goodness. And Lord, as we look in these sessions today at your service, how you were the greatest servant and you were so meek and lowly and you just have so much to offer us, Lord. I just pray that you'd open up our understanding. God, I pray that you would inspire us to want to be the best servants that we can be. I pray that you would reveal just hidden little gems that are so personal and unique that all along the way we just, our excitement builds. Every page that we turn fills us with more and more excitement about what we're going to learn. Lord, I pray that you will work in us to give us faith that can move mountains. I pray that the women in this room will be able to say that they've done greater things than you did when you were here on earth. 
that their faith was able to accomplish moving mountains and raising the dead even. Lord, that you would just do a supernatural work to bless these sisters as daughters of the king in such a way that their lives will lead thousands to Christ. I pray, Father God, that revival would be sparked not only in our hearts, but through our lives. And that we'd be forever changed. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Well, we are going to talk this session about Jesus as the servant of all, as the greatest servant in his servitude, we called it. And there's just so many different things that we could look at about Jesus. And personally, I just feel like, I hope that as we come to this topic, you don't feel like, well, I already know he washed the disciples' feet, and I already know he thinks being a servant is great. If that's how you feel, I've been there. And that's totally okay that you feel that way, but I want to encourage you that Jesus said this. He said, when he prayed to the Father, he said, Lord, I don't want you to take these people out of the world. They're mine, and I put my spirit in them, but I don't want you to take them out of the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. And only Jesus himself modeled that for us. Being in this rat race, but not being of it. And <laughs> this is the day of telephones. If anyone else forgot to silence their phone, silence it, silence it. If anyone else is, is feeling like, well, I already serve and I do this and I do that, that's not what it's about. It's about us taking a fresh look at what he already gave and just being able to appreciate him and be inspired by him, okay? I know I'm not going to tell you any earth-shattering thing that's new, but I hope that as we look full into his face, we'll be able to be more like him. In 1 John, it says, as Jesus was in the world, so we are. And Jesus himself said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, who wants to be great in the kingdom of God? I think all of us, right? I want to. I want him to, to, to be able to say to each one of us when we get to heaven, well done, welcome. I want you to have rule of 10 cities. I want you to be right at the front because I have something so special for you. You did an amazing job. And so as we look at his service, we're looking to learn. We're looking at who he is because there's something for us. Amen? I'd like you to just turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. And again, this is going to be a scripture that's very familiar to you, but no matter how hard I 
tried to start with something else. This is where the Lord wanted us to be. <laughs> I kept coming back and back and back to the scripture. Philippians chapter 2. It says, starting in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even the humiliating death on a cross. Now, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just impossible for us to talk about Jesus as a servant and not take a few minutes to look at his heart. You know, Jesus himself said, I'm meek and lowly. Come to me. I don't want you to be tired and weary. I want you to learn from me. I want you to be yoked with me. And, and, and we have in Africa those old oxen plows that you see pictures of in old movies where the, the ox are hooked up to that piece of wood and that metal and they pull together the plow. And, and we know that in that situation, the two oxen together share the burden, the weight and the stress of plowing up that land because the ground actually, I know none of, well, most of us aren't farmers, but I've learned a little bit about it being in Africa and the ground is actually hard and they, they use a hoe. It is backbreaking work to break up fallow ground and to do this work because they have to literally like over their head, boom, put that hoe into the ground to break it up. And a plow, because it's pointed like this and sharp, it'll just go into the ground and break that up and make a nice, beautiful line. But those yoke have to be equally, I mean, sorry, those oxen have to be yoked together. They share the burden. They share that back-breaking work. And Jesus says, be yoked with me. But really, with Jesus, it's almost like he says, ride on my back and I'll do the work. Because he's the one who puts his back and his strength into it. And we just get to hold on to him and learn as he goes. Now, that doesn't mean that we're lazy servants. It means that he's a great teacher. He's a, an altruistic teacher. 
He's a giving teacher. He's a teacher who goes out of his way to do everything he can to make sure we succeed. I don't know if you've ever done homework with your kids and they're really struggling and it's something that maybe, maybe it's math or something and it just happens to be the one thing in math that you're great at. And there's this thing in our heart we just think, oh, I just so want to do it for them. You know, I want them to get it done and I want them to do it right, but we know we can't because if we do it for them, they'll never learn. And we're defeating the purpose. And in the exact same way, when Jesus says, be yoked with me as a servant, that's exactly what he means. He's not saying, I want to do it for you. He's passionate about teaching us the same way you feel and you just think, I want them to learn because it's so simple, right? That's, it, it just happens. That's so simple and I know when they understand it'll just be so simple for them. When Jesus is teaching us about servanthood or about anything, he knows that once we get it and we do what he's doing, it's going to be so simple. It'll be almost effortless for us. And it's almost like an oxymoron, right? That we're going to serve and it's going to be effortless. <laughs> I mean, you read the book of Revelation and when it talks about all the churches and the labor that they did, it actually says that they labored to the point of exhaustion. The word means that they were just toiling and sweating, doing so much that they were absolutely exhausted. But have you ever gotten to the end of a day? I'm sure, like you ladies, I saw most of you on Thursday when you were setting everything up and getting ready Friday before everybody came. There's some days where you work so hard, but the end of the day comes and you're just sweaty but so happy because things came out just exactly the way you wanted. You know what I mean? There's just a joy, a contentment, a fulfillment. It was labor, but because it was a labor of love, it was just pure joy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's what serving Christ is like. And... I don't know what capacity you serve God in if you serve God. Or maybe you've never served God. And so you're thinking, well, what do you mean? Do you mean like teaching? Do you mean cleaning the church and, and being the one who does the janitorial service? What do you mean by serving? What you find... In Jesus, Jesus said, oh, read the Gospels as you, well, let me just say as you read through the Gospels, because I'm already assuming that all of you have some sort of daily reading plan. But this year, as you read through the Gospels, would you just notice how Jesus always says, 
I don't do what I want to do. I do what my father wants me to do. Over and over again, he says it. Right? I've got other things to do. The will of my father. The will of my father. He says it over and over again. And the $40,000 question for any new believer is, what is the will of God for me? Right? You're going to be so excited about this. Do you know that scripture tells us what the will of God is? That you can say definitively, I know the answer to that question. And I'm sorry, I don't remember off the top of my head the scripture reference, but I will get it for you. (laughs) But Jesus said, this is the will of God, that you know him that you know God is the will of God. That's what all of life is about, you knowing him. Remember when I said last night, the most important thing to Jesus is you. When we do our foundations classes in Africa and we we teach new believers about the scripture and we tell them what the word of God is. The first thing we say is that, you know, the Bible's made up of 66 books and New Testament, Old Testament. We give all these statistics, but we say it's got one theme, one. God's relationship to man. That's what the theme of the entire Bible is. I don't know if you've thought about that recently. Sometimes when we've been believers for a long time, we forget. And so because of that, because the whole message of the gospel, the Bible, not just the gospel, but the whole Bible is about God loving us. Because of that, and the only way that God can have a relationship with us is through Jesus. So because of that, Jesus is on every page. So when your mind is is just racing and you're feeling like, God, what is your will for my life? Scripture says the will of God for you is that you would know God. You would know Jesus, period. Now, that doesn't answer our specific questions of, should I um, go to Africa or should I, or let me say it this way, should I go to Bible school in Marietta at the Bible college or should I take the um, extension campus in Italy or whichever country you want to go to? Those are legitimate questions. But God has a unique answer for each one of us. And we, in English, put lots of things into one group and say that is is God's will. The same way we ask that $40,000 question, what is the will of God for me? But God's will for all of us is just that we would know God. Those specific questions that we have along the way His delight is to explain as we fulfill his overall will for us. And here's what I mean by that. 
as you're serving God and reading the scripture and getting to know him, investing in that relationship, making it your aim to fulfill his will for your life, he speaks to you, he reveals himself to you, and he makes known to you, sometimes even before you ask, the answer to questions like that. I'm so sure of how God answers. I was sharing this story with my daughter as we were driving over from California, and I love sharing it, so I'll, I'll share it with you too, but um, I was trying to explain to some, I was trying to explain to her and trying to explain to someone else that God is so specific when we ask questions like that. And, and I've always had this really sweet relationship with the Lord because I just, I was so young in my faith and I didn't know. I didn't, my, my parents were both extremely religious. My dad is from a big denominational faith and my mom is a Jehovah's Witness. And so my parents are just extremely religious and righteous. And the Bible was something that we talked about all the time in my family. So everything was very literal for me when I got born again. And when I started reading my Bible every day, and I, someone gave me a one-year Bible. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen those, but I love that thing. I was so excited. It was like... I was a kid and you gave me the best toy on the watch list. I just got so excited about that. And I, you know, started in Genesis every day. I was reading, you know, both New and Old Testament, a little bit of Psalms and Proverbs. I just loved it. But, you know, God, from the day I first got saved, started speaking to me through his word. And I would come to church and I would just be so excited about the Bible. And I would say to someone, did you know that the heave offering looks like this? And, and people actually took the meat in their hands and they would wave it like this. And people would look at me like, what are you reading? And I was like, I got this really cool thing. It's called a one-year Bible. I didn't know that everybody has one. And so I was like, I got this really cool thing. And I was just talking all the time about the Bible. And people used to smile and shake their head and say, I remember I used to be like that when I first got saved. It's okay. You'll calm down. And I used to think, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. He was so in love with God. He never calmed down. To me, it seemed like he just fell more in love with God. So I have this love for God's word, just, just a love for it. And, and God would speak to me so, so clearly. Like one time I remember I was, um, well, to make a long story short, I was married to a non-believer. When I first got married, I was married and my husband wasn't a Christian, neither was I. And then I got saved. And so um, he didn't want me to go to church. And, and I was just really struggling because I wanted to be in fellowship, wanted to be in the word. And I had gotten some really good counsel, and I had a great support system, and I came to a situation where I felt like I wanted to, to ask him if I could start going to church on a certain day of the week, and that day, my reading was, it shall come to pass before they even ask, I will answer, and I can't remember the exact situation now, but but 
he suggested that I start going to church on this day or whatever. Like it was just such a miracle, but things like that would happen all the time where the word would just so specifically speak to me. So I always expected that when I had a question, I could just take it to the word and God was going to speak to me. And this is the story I was telling my daughter and I had felt that God was impressing on my heart during this specific season that I was supposed to not leave the city where I was living. I was supposed to just wait on the Lord. And now in retrospect, I can tell you God was preparing me to go to Africa. So that's why he didn't want me to move and get back into this big job and move back into my house and all this and that. But everybody was giving me flack. They all thought I should do something different. And I was just so sure God had spoken, but I didn't have a scripture yet. And I was telling her that my girlfriend called me up and she started laughing when, when I answered the phone. She said, you're not going to believe this. She said, but I was praying for you today. And, and I'm just absolutely sure, even though I want you to do A, B, C, D, I know you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. And she was laughing the whole time. And I was like, why are you laughing about this? Like, I'm taking a lot of flack here. And she said, well, this is the scripture I got. And she read it to me. And it's from, I believe it's like Psalm 77 or 71 or somewhere in the 70s. But it says this. It says, blessed is he who dwells in the courts of Zion. Or wait, who dwells in Salem. His courts are in Zion. Now that makes no sense to you. You're thinking, what? I lived in Salem, Oregon. And, and, and the street <laughs> I lived on was Zion Court. <laughs> but God was that specific about his will for my life. And I'm telling you, sister, he will be for you too. It may not have the name. That was definitely a fun little thing. But it will be specific for you. The important thing is to decide if you want to serve as Jesus did. Because not everyone wants to be a disciple. Remember, Jesus said that. He said, if you want to be my disciple, right? And it comes with that idea that not everybody is going to want to. So I want to take a couple minutes and talk about Jesus as a servant. As a servant. We have this phrase that maybe some of you have heard, a, a, a doulos, a servant, Remember how Paul would say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Has anybody heard that phrase, seen it? It's, it's in lots of the different epistles and letters. And, and this phrase, description of a bondservant, I want you to look at real quick. Because I think it helps us to understand how Jesus viewed himself as a servant. And you'll see a little more when I explain. Okay, if you know your Bible, I'm just going to give you the reference and explain the story to you. But in the book of Exodus, in chapter 21, it explains that 
In Israel, when a person was a servant, was a slave in the household, that after so many years, I believe it was six, they had to be set free. According to God's um, rules over Israel, he wanted people to know everyone belongs to God, not someone else. He didn't want people to think that everybody was property. And so he gave specific rules about how long you could keep a servant a slave. And the rule was that after these six years, you had to set them free. You had to give them their release. And in Exodus 21, it explains that for a slave, if he had been a slave and enjoyed serving his master, if he had found that in that home he was blessed, he liked what he was doing, he liked his master, at that six-year mark he could say, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. I want to keep serving. And that specific type of servant was called a doulos, a bond servant. And they would take that servant and they would go to the doorpost and they would pierce his ear with a gold earring. And that earring would signify, if, you, if, if that slave, say, worked for you and came to my house to deliver something for you, I would know, oh, this slave is more like a son. This is a slave that loves what he does. He's doing it because he just loves the people he's working with. It's not, he's not being forced. And, and so they were obviously trusted. They were respected. They were given all different kinds of responsibilities. And, and when you see Jesus describing himself as a servant of the Father. This is the same word. It doesn't have a separate word that we can differentiate and say for sure this is what he meant. But I believe this is the word that Jesus was trying to express to us. It wasn't just a job to Jesus. That's why he constantly says, my father, my father, my father. It was his desire to do it. And for this doulos, this bond servant, that was his desire to do the will of God for the father. I loved how Jesus said at one point, he said, um, I, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is just to do his will. And you think about food, that's something you need every day. It's a necessity. And I love that picture. Jesus was saying, it's a necessity for me. I love it so much, it's a necessity for me. And that's the kind of servant he was. Remember that he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's right up there in the glory of heaven. I don't know what you think about when you think of heaven. But Jesus was not only in heaven, he was Lord over heaven. He was not only able to move freely any place and enjoy everything, he was the one in charge of all the servants. He was the one who owned everything that was in heaven. He was 
the heir, the first in line. It was his mansion. Everything was designed to his specification. And we read that scripture that Jesus laid it all aside. He came and was a servant because he wanted to be. When salvation was planned in the mind and heart of God, way back before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And there was no question in the mind of Jesus, like, really, I got to be the one? I mean, this is going to stink, God. Do you know how much stuff I'm going to have to do? I I mean, come on. I'm going to have to be human. I'm going to have aches and pains and difficulty. It was nowhere in the mind of Jesus. I mean, think about the choices we make, especially in this day and age. You know how they say we're the generation of instant gratification? (laughs) And and our generation, we take a pill for everything. (laughs) If there's any little ache or pain, we're like, oh, give me an ibuprofen. Or something stronger in most cases, but... But you know what I'm saying? Think about it in light of that. He didn't just leave here. Or, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, how can you live in Africa? I live in a, in a village where there's no running water. They don't have electricity. People live in homes that are made of mud and straw. And, and, and I have the nicest existence now because I'm a foreigner you know and I have shoes not everybody has shoes most families you guys live in a house that literally is about six feet in diameter one room the bathroom is a little outhouse that they probably share with several neighbors The kitchen, they cook outside over a couple of rocks. Maybe they have a little oven that they made out of mud. And they have to cook everything from scratch. They have to go out and cut the firewood that they use to cook with. I don't even know how to cook. I mean, (laughs) so I definitely have it the easiest of all of them. But that's the kind of civilization that Jesus went into. Jesus didn't, when he came to earth, go to a rich family. He lived with somebody that was so poor when they had to go to the temple and make the offering for the firstborn. They were supposed to bring, what, an ox or a sheep? And there was a provision, if you were poor, that you could bring two doves. And that's what Mary and Joseph had to bring. And Jesus wasn't born into a family that was respected. He was, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He lived his whole life under the constant shame, shame of being an illegitimate son. 
You see it in the New Testament when they say, oh, we know whose son he is. They were constantly dissing him about his parents. It's important that we realize the kind of servant that Jesus was, especially ladies in our day and age, you know? Because I catch myself, and I don't know if you do this, I hope you don't, but, but I'm just going to confess my sin. I catch myself thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that. Like somehow I'm above it. And it's not like it's some disgraceful thing. It's just something I don't want to do. You know, Jesus could have felt that way about anything he had to do. And, and maybe it feels like, oh, you know, you're making a lot about what he gave, but really I'm not. <laughs> if we think about who he was. And, you know, we, we all romanticize the, the Christmas story and, you know, being born in a manger, but have you guys ever been in a barn? They stink. They stink. And, and I used to be the kind of person, this is why no one believed that God called me to Africa, because I was the kind of person that if I got sweaty or got, you know, was like sticky, I had to take a shower immediately. <laughs> Can you imagine how humid it was? I don't know if you are aware of this, but in that part of the world, January can be really hot and muggy and sticky. Like in Africa, it's so hot and sticky. It does get kind of cold at night, so, you know, hopefully at night it was nice for him, but he could have been miserable in there, miserable in there. Mary, after riding on a donkey, which... Okay, you know, you think riding on a donkey, but the alternative was being that pregnant and walking. Now, I've, like I said, never been pregnant, but I, I, I've been around a lot of pregnant people. My, my daughter, when she was pregnant, because she had twins, everybody would see her and go, you must be having twins. Her belly was like out to here. Huh, I'm not exaggerating. She told my husband and I, she said, I can barely drive like the car doesn't go back any further. <laughs> it was just all baby because both of them were right there. And I don't know how pregnant Mary was, but that can't have been comfortable. And Jesus lived under subjection to his parents. You know, we read that one account of his childhood. Is there anybody in this room that was rebellious as a young person? Can you just put your hand up just real quick? So I can see if there's like a lot of you or just a few. <laughs> I mean, I just think about how rebellious I was in my heart and how selfish I was and how self-centered I was, you know? And there was Jesus. He was still God, ladies. I, I don't really want to pretend that I understand that. But at that point, a 12-year-old boy, I think they say he was around 12, he was preaching to the best scholars in the world, 
preaching to them. And it says they were amazed at his doctrine. They were literally dumbfounded at the insight he had. So we know his mind was working perfectly. Have you guys ever worked with someone or, or been under someone who's not quite as bright as you? <laughs> and they're telling you what to do, right? And, and you just feel like, Arr! you know? <laughs> and may, hopefully you're more gracious than me, but like we get so frustrated. We get so upset. I, I, I just, sometimes I stop and try to think about what Jesus must have felt like. He, he, for the 33 years that he lived here, spent his time investing in people. <laughs> Anybody who's in ministry will tell you the hardest thing about ministry is people. <laughs> right? The hardest thing about any relationship is there's another person involved. And Jesus spent his with people. And and sometimes I don't know if you've ever done this and and I I really hope this doesn't sound prideful cuz I don't mean it prideful. I hope you've done it too so you understand, but like sometimes I read the Bible like, for example, I read the Old Testament and I read about, like, how the people of Israel would, like, see a miracle of God and then question God the next day. And I think, really? Like, how could they do that? Does anyone else ever think that? Like, I just think, are they stupid? You know, like, honestly, a couple times I've really, really been frustrated thinking, I would never do that. And then immediately I get convicted because the Holy Spirit reminds me of some situation where I did something, you know, equally as, as foolish. But, but Jesus, here he is on earth, wisest person, he's God, knows everything, has this heart to take 12 men, and, and I love that he chooses just ordinary people. He chooses the most unlikely. He gives us a beautiful, beautiful example of what he meant in 1 Corinthians, that he chooses the base things, things nobody else would want, the weak and foolish. And he begins trying to reveal kingdom principles to them. He lives with them. And he's so patient with them. Everything about his life exemplifies service above and beyond. I wanted us to look together real quick at 1 Corinthians. Sorry, I have to look at the scripture because I forgot the address. Uh, chapter 9, verse 19. And again, I'm sure for most of us, this is a passage we're pretty familiar with. Paul says, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To I might win more of them. 
And to the Jews, I become a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as, as, sorry, to those without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with all of you. Didn't Jesus exemplify that when he stayed with the disciples, when he lived among us for those 33 years? His servanthood humbles me every time I think about it because Jesus saw life not as a responsibility to serve, but as a privilege and opportunity to serve. And that's what I hope that each of us catches from this brief little time that we have to look at the word. It's also our privilege. It's also our privilege. Jesus looked at things like teaching as service, because it is. Eating as service. He looked at everything. Everything as serving. Because he saw everything as an opportunity to win someone into the kingdom. That would be, I really believe with all my heart, Jesus' definition of service. What's your definition of service? You don't have to answer it. I, I just want you to think about it. What is your definition of service? And I hope if it's anything other than what Jesus considers service, You'll expand your definition today. Because here's the thing. When you see Jesus, I want you to, can someone just shout out their favorite um, story from the Gospels of Jesus with the disciples? Jesus washing their feet. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you. <laughs> what an easy choice. But it's so easy to see him serving them there. But what I love more than anything about that story is what it says right in the beginning. It says the meal had ended and Jesus, knowing what was coming, And I think about, sorry, I think about knowing that I was about to do the most painful, difficult thing in my life. He had never, and we're going to talk about the crucifixion next, but he had never, ever been separated from God, ever. 
He'd never felt lonely. He never felt abandoned, never felt scared. Never sinned. Never knew what it was like to break God's heart, to deny himself. And he knew that he was going to experience that for you and me, not just for one of us. I think sometimes that's how I used to think about it, you know, that it was just for one of us. It was for all of us. Even for the people that reject him. And because he knows the end from the beginning, he knows they're going to reject him. He knows they're going to go to their grave, his enemy. But he loves them so much. So much. Even though he knows they're going to reject him. He's not willing. He's not willing to not have suffered for them too. And he knew that. And he said, this is a perfect time. It says he girded himself with a towel and started washing their feet. My point was, you know, I hope somebody would pick something really, like, not what you think of as serving, like, you know, when they walked through a field or something. But, like, you know... Everything Jesus saw it as an opportunity. He saw serving as a privilege, as an expression, as a way to express his love. And I think so often for me, I think of serving as a burden or a responsibility. Or sometimes I consider, like, obviously, coming here, I consider a privilege. Like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. I get to go and share. I consider that a privilege. I'm excited about it. But I don't think that when I have to clean my house, you know, I don't think of the difficult things or the more I don't know, unpleasant things that I have to do as an opportunity to express love to someone. But Jesus did. He had this uncanny ability. He did. And I guess what I want to say to us is we can. That's what he promised us. That's what he purchased for us. That's what he offers to us you can too do you want to and and if you don't want to that's totally okay but are you willing to ask him to make you want to because he will he will think of Jesus With the disciples, I'm trying to think of like like when they're on the road to Emmaus. That's probably not the greatest one because it's after, but they're on the road to Emmaus. 
And Jesus' thought was, this is awesome. They're discouraged. They're downcast. I get to show them that this has been my plan from the beginning. That this wasn't an accident. That this didn't just have a good turnout. We planned it this way. And we planned it this way for them. With a gleam in his eye and just an excitement in his heart. Paul went on to say in that verse this. He said, don't you realize that those who are running in a race, everybody runs and everybody runs all out, but only one person receives the prize. So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everybody who competes for the prize is moderate in all things. They do it because they want a perishable crown. But you and me, we do it for an imperishable crown. So I run, not with uncertainty, and I fight, not as one who's just beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection so that when I've preached to other people, I myself not be, might not be disqualified. I love that scripture. And, and, and my prayer and my hope is that for each one of us, God would give us that same heart that he gave to Paul. Because the truth is, the reality is, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's everything he said he was and so much more. And he's so incredible, so amazing, that we are literally going to spend all of eternity, all of eternity, learning about him, understanding more about him. So when God says, this is my will, that you know me, he's so serious about it, you guys, it's going to be the truth forever, forever. We're getting just the tiniest little tip of the iceberg here, the tiniest little bit but we're gonna get the whole enchilada when we get to heaven and throughout eternity. And, and, and here's what I think, and I could be wrong, but I think there's scripture to back it up. We have this once in a lifetime opportunity. You are here today because you've asked Jesus to save you. You're born again. You're a child of a king. It's absolutely guaranteed. Nobody can take it away from you. You're absolutely going to make it all the way to heaven. There's no way you can get lost or there can be some kind of catastrophe on the, on the way. You're definitely going to have everything 
that we've been talking about. But here's the thing. We have one, one blessing that most of us miss out on. We have the privilege of taking every breath that we have until then and investing it in the future. When we get there, there's nothing we can add. The, the books will be tallied, as we say, when we get there. But between now and then, we can add all kinds of stuff. And I think that the enemy does a really good job of ripping us off and making us think that the only way to make an investment is to give money or to become this amazing person of prayer that prays for 18 hours a day or something that just seems almost superhuman. You know what I mean? That's not it. That's not it. Every single choice that you make that says, I'm dead, I'm going to decrease so Jesus can increase, adds. Everything, remember yesterday when I said, and he spins around wildly like a bridegroom rejoicing over a bride. Everything that makes him spin around wildly means you get to add something to your inheritance. Everything. As you sit there, uh, Christy, one of the sweet sisters working back there, helping us with sound, she blessed me so much yesterday. I had told her about my mom and how much I'm praying for her salvation. She told me yesterday she's been praying for her for two you're getting a big reward for that. <laughs> I was so blessed by that. She served me, served my mom, and she gets rewarded for it in the process. Nobody else is offering us that, you guys. And I feel like in this day and age that we live in, everybody's missing it. We live in the me generation, right? We live in the instant gratification. I want it to be comfortable, da, 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 whatever. We could go on and on and on about that. I don't want to. Instead, I just want to say we have this incredible opportunity. And it's so easy to walk in it. And I just want to take a couple minutes before we close and talk about how easy it is and some really practical, simple things we can do to serve and be like Jesus. Has anyone ever heard the phrase, what would Jesus do? And has anybody read the book? If you haven't, I encourage you, if, if you, you know, enjoy reading and, and already read your Bible and everything, don't make it a substitute for your Bible, but it's a great little book to read. But that book 
And that whole idea of what would Jesus do is a great way to just simply think about service as an opportunity. What would Jesus do in this situation? And now ask yourself just one more question. How is that serving? And think that through. And then ask yourself, how could I do it? How could I copy? There is nothing that brings pleasure to the heart of God like us imitating him. Nothing that brings more pleasure to him. Especially when it means that we're blessing his kids. You know, Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. And I, I shared this when I was here a couple of years ago, and it's just one of my favorite, favorite things in the Bible, so I'm going to share it again. But in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, they asked him, Jesus, like, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is almost exactly like it. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But he says right after that, on these two things hang all of the law and the prophets. If you want to know, sister, daughter of the king, chosen bride of Christ, how to fulfill every single thing God has ever said in his word, love him and love people. Isn't that easy? Everything about God is easy. Everything about service is easy. Everything about life is based on love because God is love. And service, ladies, is just an opportunity to love. Anytime you're loving somebody in Jesus' name, you're serving. That's biblical. I'm not making that up. I'm not simplifying it to the point of giving an illustrative point. No, I'm telling you the truth. But I'm sure a lot of people have told you. I know a lot of people have told me. The time is short. The end is near. Every sign that's written in Matthew 24 the places where Jesus said, when you see these things happening, look up. Because your redemption is close, right around the corner. It's already happened. We are right there. We are right there. And life wants us to think about life. The rat race wants to, to absorb all of us. But there is still eternal work to be done. And you, you were chosen by God to live in this generation, at this particular time, in this particular city, for this particular perfect purpose. One of my favorite fiery old preachers says, are we living lives worthy of the gospel Jesus died for. 
I'm so thankful, so thankful that I know all that. But I've even, I'm even more thankful that I have the privilege of sharing it with you. Anything. Jesus said, if you give somebody a cup of water, cold water in my name, be sure you're going to be rewarded. Why would he go to such great lengths to give examples like that if he didn't mean it? If giving someone a cup of cold water makes a difference, and I know it does because I live in a culture where a cup of water is an incredible sign of love, token of love. When you're on a long journey, I remember the guys, the chaplains were telling me they were, <laughs> they were in a, in a, on a road trip and they were going to deliver some food and to preach the gospel. And the place they were going was like a four or five day journey from where we are. And so they were in this big old truck and it was full of all the food they were taking and they were moving along while the truck broke down. And so they were in this town and they thought they were in a different town. And so they asked, where is, and they asked, the, I think the name of the place was called Quajok. And they said, where is Quajok? And people actually laughed at them because they were in Quajok. <laughs> I mean, they were just so far from where, where they thought they were. And it was just so funny. All the things were just funny that happened on the way. But at the time, you know, it didn't seem funny. And and so they were asking these people that just happened by on the road, because it's not a well-traveled road, where, where can we get water? Where can we get water? Because they were realizing that they'd been stuck there now for a day and a half, and their water supply was getting low. And people were like, oh, and they just kept going. And one of the guys was like, I can't believe that. That's not even cultural. Like, why are people being like that? They know this is a dire situation. We're broke down. Well, it's because they were only a few feet away from a well. <laughs> and so they were thinking they were making fun of them. <laughs> but they weren't. They were in earnest. And so when someone realized that they were in earnest, you know, they, they led them to the water. So that's what I'm saying. In a culture like that, a cup of water is a really big deal. A really big deal. That's not probably something you or I would ever even think of as a hardship or a service. Any expression of love is yours to give. Start practicing giving. Not your money. I don't care what you do with your money. Do you know each time you see an accident on the road and you shoot up a prayer? You've served. You've prayed for somebody. Any time. Instead of going shopping... You go to church 15 minutes early just because you want to find somebody to encourage. You're serving. 
Maybe you're shy. I'm really socially awkward, so I completely understand. Write a card. I love writing cards because that's really easy. And I can put scriptures in there. I love it. And the funniest thing always happens. People will say to me, oh my gosh, remember that card you gave me? I saved it. And you said A, B, C, D. I can never remember what I said. Because I'm in the moment, you know? My heart is 100% there and I want to give that card and write out exactly what I feel like the Lord's giving me for that person. But then it's gone. Something like that is serving. You know, you, you probably have a closet that's too full or, you know, an area of your house that's cluttered with a bunch of junk. You can put all that stuff together and give it to a ministry. You don't have to give money to serve. You can stuff envelopes. There's lots of ministries. For a while, we used to have to fold all of our newsletters and send them every month ourselves. It was a huge job. And, and my friends um, used to help, and we'd have like these little parties. Everybody would get together and just fold and stuff envelopes. But it was a huge blessing. A huge blessing. There's so many ways. If you're willing, I promise you, God will show you a thousand ways you can serve. And I want to just say one more thing. It's really, really easy to think, yeah, yeah, I already know all that. And walk out of here and get so busy Nothing changes. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Put a note in your Bible. Say to the Lord, before the end of this year, God, I want you to help me invest in the kingdom. I want to find another way to serve. Set a goal. It doesn't have to be huge. But here's what I know. Serving the Lord, it's infectious. And when you start serving and you have such joy and you're excited about it and your mindset changes, and you start seeing life as a series of opportunities to bless other people and to love them in Jesus' name, it's infectious. People are going to see that, just that excitement in you, that zeal in you. What they really see is Jesus in you. And Jesus said, if you lift me up, I draw people to me. And all of a sudden, your life becomes that mode. You don't even realize it. And guess what? He rewards you for that too. 
It's like you can't lose. Honestly, you just can't lose. Because he blesses you at every single turn. Amen? And I want to just, sorry, I keep thinking of one more thing I want to say. One more thing. <laughs> the most unlikely people are forgotten. You know, that grouchy neighbor, that old folks home that you drive by on your way to work. My mom used to work in an old folks home. And there were, I would say, only a few people in the whole entire place that actually got visitors. And, and honestly, my mom used to give her clothes away because some of them didn't even have sweaters. And this was, I was in high school, so 40 years ago. There are people that are just so lonely, so nearby. And, and reaching out to them will change their life forever. I know when I've been in that place of just loneliness and brokenness and someone took the time to reach out to me, I never, ever forget those people, ever. But more importantly, Jesus is never going to forget. He is the greatest servant of all, and he said he wants us to be great by being servants too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I, I'm just overwhelmed right now, Lord, by all the opportunities that you've put in our lives. I feel like you just bless us and bless us and bless us and then bless us again. It just feels like you heap good thing upon good thing upon good thing. And Lord, I, I'm just so sorry for all the complaints that I've given and all the things that I've taken for granted. Thank you, Father, for your example. And I just pray for my sisters. And I ask, Lord, that as we worship and we take our break, Lord, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, inspire them, God, to practice giving themselves away. Father, I pray that you would, in their hearts, make them just like you that it would expand the kingdom a thousandfold, Lord, that next time Calvary Surprise has a retreat, this place wouldn't be big enough for us, Lord. And I just pray, Jesus, that we would be able to look back 
at this time in our lives and say, thank you so much, God, for teaching me how easy it is to love. And Lord, that, that we would be eternally grateful because of all the souls that are one from that simple, simple gift of serving. We love you, we praise you, and we give you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.